The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks that you are capable of being the object of what we just sang. We can say, it is, it is told to us in the Bible that we should say, we can write it in songs and kind of by corporate obligation make ourselves all sing together, we are satisfied in you alone. But if you were not satisfying, it would be one great big lie. Thank God that it isn't. That you are, in fact, enough for us, more than enough for us. That you yourself are all goodness. You are the well from which flows everything that we need. And it is delightful drink from that well it is fullness of life so we have to do something we are commanded to do something that in fact is truly and deeply fulfilling and satisfying and delightful and good so we get to do it you are enough for us you are you are good and I pray this morning, Lord, as look at this passage here in front of us in the Gospel of Luke, that I feel myself as I look at this, that there are lots of details, and I myself get lost in the weeds here very easily. And I pray that you would maybe preach the sermon above the sermon, and that you would press home to us that you are enough, that you are satisfying, that you are what we actually do want. We don't want more cash and bigger houses and cooler cars and the wealth of this world does not actually cut it. Would you make that clear? And Lord, I would ask that beyond that, if there are other things that you need to make clear, would you make them clear too? Would you help my words to be, to be straight and orderly and understandable and help us all to think along with them and speak? That's what we look for, Lord, for you to speak, for you to press truth into us and grow us up, and that towards the end of leading us to the spring, the fountain, and letting us drink. So satisfy us with yourself, Lord, you are good. Make clear your word, build your church, and honor your son. It's in his name that we are so bold to ask that because he has invited us in secured for us a place to ask and promised to hear and answer. 
In his name we ask. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 16, where we find another parable in a different setting and on a different topic. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at this well-known set of parables in Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then last week, the parable of the prodigal son. The first two, kind of together, have a slightly different, different emphasis than the last one, but they're all told together in response to grumbling Pharisees and scribes. Religious leaders who were grumbling were upset because of Jesus and how he pursued and welcomed particular types of people that they all regard as bad. Bad people. People that Jesus should avoid, not welcome. But he explained, through the telling of these parables, that he regards all people alike as, not as good, but all alike as equally lost, that is, equally separated, distanced from God, and equally in need of being sought out, pursued, and then found by God, and brought to repentance by God. And so that's what he's doing as he eats with people that are regarded as bad as well as people who are regarded as good, everybody alike. He's pursuing them and seeking to draw them to repentance because at repentance, as we saw last week, as was already prayed about this morning, this is the astonishing truth in, in the parable of the prodigal son. Repentance in a person is met by God with marvelous, astonishing mercy and grace. Wherever you are then on the spectrum of distance from God, whether just kind of slightly, barely wandering a little bit or all the way on the, the other end of not a Christian, wherever you are on that spectrum, if you turn to him in genuine repentance, like we saw in that, in that son there, a repentance that is, that is humble, that is open-handed, that doesn't come standing on any rights or claiming any self-contribution, but just says, as was prayed, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I am not worthy to be called your son. That kind of humble, open-handed repentance. If you come like that, Jesus wants to make very clear that you will find God to be astonishingly merciful, joyfully so, and then more gracious than you can guess. He pours out on you the blessings of the kingdom. So we need to know that for ourselves so that we will come. It's his kindness that draws us to repentance. We know that for ourselves and for other people. A big piece of why Jesus told this is so that he was explaining how and why he's looking at other people, that we're supposed to look at other people that way too, to, to seek other people out and to welcome them when they repent, to, re, to receive them in too. So that's what he's, he's pressing on us and, and encouraging us, this is the end of the passage, not to remain in this position where that older brother is, that, that position of performance-based worthiness. This thinking that, no, what actually makes me worthy to come in, what actually makes her, him worthy to come into the presence of God and be welcomed into heaven is how well he's done, how well I've done. That leaves you outside the joy. You miss the feast. We can't get tripped up on that. We cannot get hung up on that and stuck then in judgmentalism and personally pride or insecurity, either striving insecurely to make ourselves worthy or proud that we think we have become so. No. That was chapter 15. 
And then today we have a switch. Jesus is now switching audiences and he's going to address his disciples. And there, there isn't any, any indication of exactly when or how this happened. It, it might have happened immediately or it might, there might be some time. So really, on the one hand, we are at a, a fresh topic. But there are some conceptual connections here. Because you could leave the last chapter and say, so just do whatever you want. If, it, if there's no like performance-based worthiness, then do whatever you want. And to that, Jesus says here to his disciples, no, there is such a thing as consequence and there is such a way to properly walk. God does want us to live in a certain way. There's a wise way to live. There's a way that addresses what I find when I am welcomed into heaven. A sense of consequence. So there is a conceptual connection here, conceptual connection, but it could stand alone too. He turns to talk to his disciples in the beginning of Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, the whole parable, and then some of the comments that Jesus makes after it. And then I'm going to draw two observations from it. And I think this is quite applicable. I said, as I prayed earlier, that I'm a little worried about getting lost in all the details here. I have, I have written and thought and rewritten and my notes are all scratched out with things because there's so much to explain here. I have found myself getting lost in the details. So let me actually just invite you. Don't miss the forest for the trees here. There's a message here that Americans especially need to hear because he's talking about wealth and how to use it in a way that builds the kingdom, honors God, and blesses you, the wealthy. So see that, and don't get lost in all the other stuff, which I'm going to have to touch upon to try to explain, but my prayer, as I said earlier, was that you would see that the big picture that God would preach the sermon above the sermon. So listen for that as I read chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Luke 16. Here's the first observation. Prudent disciples use worldly wealth generously for the sake of the kingdom and others. Prudent disciples use worldly wealth generously for the sake of the kingdom and others. Jesus is speaking to disciples here. He tells this parable. That's important to, to keep in mind all throughout. He is not telling disciples how to become disciples. Or to put it in our language, he's not telling people how to become Christians. He's talking to people who already are. He's telling them rather since, as, one who has become already, in the words of verse 8, a son of light, as one who has already been deemed worthy of the kingdom by the blood of Jesus. That already having happened, how should a disciple live? So critically, he's not talking about how to become a Christian. But he's talking to Christians, here's how you live, and in fact, Non-Christians in the world have something to teach us. And so he makes up this parable. He tells this parable here. Familiar one with a manager who would have been a household steward in charge of like a large estate since this is a wealthy man that he works for. He would have been in charge of an estate and the wealthy owner would have been somewhat detached from it usually, not involved in the day-to-day, except that he's now heard a complaint or a report that evidently he knows is true this man has committed some sort of financial impropriety. He's done something wrong with the money and he's therefore going to fire him. So the rich man shows up, tells him to clean out his office, you're fired. And verse 3, the manager says to himself as he's facing unemployment, what am I going to do? How am I going to find work for myself? I'm not going to dig and I'm not going to beg. So what he's talking about is I want to be a manager still. That's, that's my profession. How am I going to be able to do that having just been fired? I know. And he calls to himself all the debtors, all the people who he's done business with and who owe him, the master really, but he's manages their accounts. And he says to them one by one, how much do you owe? Now the manager, he knows. He's got the records. He knows how much they owe. He's asking them for effect. How much do you owe? First guy says, 100, 100 measures of oil. Oh, that's a fairly large sum. Make it 50. Write it down yourself in your own hand so it looks just like the original bill that you would have filled out and signed. There. That, that, that's pretty good for you, huh? Have a nice day. Next, he calls them in one by one. What's going on here? Well, it could be that he's just crooked. And that's what a lot of people have thought, and that could be, that this is just a reduction of the bill, robbing his master of, in this case, half. 
taking what's, what's due to the master in an attempt to curry favor with this group of debtors. A lot of people have thought that, and the main point would still stand. He's commended for his shrewdness, not for his honesty. The main point's about, about thinking it through. And he is called dishonest, and it could be that that's the dishonesty right there, the, the cutting of the bills. Could be. However, I think there's a better explanation. I think the manager is called dishonest because he already was dishonest. That's the nature of the charges that are getting him fired. I don't think that that's what's being done as he cuts the bills here. And here's why. I don't think it's very likely that this is how he's going to get himself hired as a manager for one of these guys. Think it through. You're not going to hire me to manage your accounts if how I auditioned for the job was proving to you that I'm perfectly willing to fudge all the accounts if it benefits me. I'm going to commend myself to you by showing I'm willing to steal from my master? I don't think so. I think what's going on actually is that he's doing something, and this, this would have been how they would have gained for themselves wealth. He's cutting off his own top share. He's cutting off his cut to give it to them at cost, which they would have realized. So he's still going to give to his now about to be former boss what his former boss is owed, and he's giving them a great deal, foregoing what would have been in it for him in the short run. This is very shrewd. So what comes out of this, and this is why the manager is actually commended by his boss for his shrewdness. What comes out of this is, I'm looking at an angry owner here, an angry boss, the rich man, who is going to owe me on all those contracts. He's going to owe me a cut on all those contracts there when they come due. And now I'm just saying, no, never mind. I forego that. I appease him. And I ingratiate myself to these debtors. They know I've given them a great deal. And I, I do all of that by just walking out of here without a job and without any money in my pocket. That's pretty risky, right? I'm foregoing my, my short-term security. I'm foregoing the money that would be in my pocket right now in exchange for what I hope to be a job tomorrow or next week or next month. That's a shrewd risk. It appeases and ingratiates at personal risk for the sake of the future. Nicely played. Follow that. This is one of the details here that's sometimes tricky to kind of all spell out. I think that's what's actually going on here. Either way, whether he's straight ripping him off or doing what I've suggested he's doing, kind of foregoing his own profit, Jesus says we should look at that, we who are believers, and learn from it. To think through what shrewdness looks like, what prudence looks like. Prudence with unrighteous mammon. It's a term used here, mammon, which is bigger than just money. It would have been wealth, broadly speaking, assets, resources, and money. Unrighteous because it is tied to this world and, and presents almost in its very presence, presents the opportunity for the draw for us to be pulled away and to trust in it and to use it to build all kinds of alternative gods. 
the wealth of this world, it can often lead us astray. So Jesus says, we've got something to learn about how to, how to use the wealth of this world, potentially corrupting. What can I do with it, though? It's, it's as he says in verse 9, it's about to fail me. What can I do with it? Is there something that I can do with this money, this wealth that I have, before it perishes, that will in fact be clever? Yes. Verse 9, and I tell you, a phrase we've seen before, where Jesus is underlining something with his personal authority, and in fact, this is actually a little bit more emphatic, because it doesn't just say, we're translated literally, not just, and I tell you, but I myself tell you. He kind of ups that one a little bit. I myself tell you. Here's what you should do. You should make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when it goes away, when it perishes, these friends will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Do like this man did. He used wealth that he had access to for a moment to gain friends for himself, friends who would welcome him into their homes, he hoped. That's the parallel in verses 4 and 9. Do like that man, but, but think a little bit further down the road into, into eternity. Now, Jesus is not saying, he, he's, he's phrased it like this because he's trying to draw the, the parallel there. We, we should not understand him to say there is some way that we can spend our money that guarantees people get into heaven. Of course not. And he's also not saying that that these people themselves are the ones who determine whether or not we get into heaven. He's just talking about, just realize it's just wisdom here. You can't keep this. You, you have some wealth, and we all have some wealth, and it is going to fail. You cannot take it with you. You will leave it behind. So is there a way, think about this, is there a way that you can kind of send some of it ahead to meet you on the other side? That's all he's saying. You can't guarantee any more than the manager could guarantee he's going to get himself a job. But is there a way to kind of move it forward? What might that be? Thankfully, we don't have to figure it out. Jesus tells us. A prudent disciple is generous with this worldly wealth for the sake of the kingdom and others. Gain friends, he says. Hopefully, prayerfully, kingdom friends with your money. How? How do you gain friends with money? You spend it for them. You let it flow in a way that blesses them. And we should be thinking, realizing that the whole analogy is that they will go on ahead to welcome us. This has got to be kingdom-oriented. So I want to I bless them in a way that actually is a blessing in a way that meets some need or some desire, does them some good, and also commends to them the kingdom, commends to them Christ, commends to them the gospel, commends to them this generous God that I serve that they could know. So in some way, 
I want to love them. I want to love this other one sitting across the table or the next door neighbor, a friend. I want to love this one in some way with generosity, with the resources that God has given me so that this person would be blessed and God would be commended to this person. So he's not talking about, he's not talking about, not exhorting you, be generous with contributions to public television. I want to say that, I'm not trying to make a joke there, but I want to say that because that's permissible. It's permissible to give money to public television or, or to fund a local museum or to, to give to the whatever, whatever, whatever. That's, that's permissible. That's just not what he's talking about here. So don't think, I, I, do, I do that, I'm on track. Not necessarily. It's perfectly fine. But here, what he means is use this wealth that I've given you to win friends to the kingdom. So there has to be some way that they could see, oh, this generosity, that God, tied somehow in your life. What would it look like? How, how would that be? Well, it's not really that hard to think about some of these things. Obviously, right? Some of them would be very clear. You can indirectly win friends for yourself with your wealth, win kingdom friends for yourself with your wealth by giving to things like a church, a Christian mission organization that is going to, in its ministries, commend the gospel to people, and they'll see, here's who he is, and that, was, that happened because of the resources given by these people. You know, the, the church happens because we all give resources to it, right? That, that's a clear and obvious way. Indirect, there are more direct ways. You yourself could give to a person that you know to meet an electrical bill need, to provide a, a meal for somebody in need, to pick up coffee at the office day by day by day. Understand why I go there? Because you could see, sure, I, I get it. I spend money at the church. That's for religious things. Uh-huh. So might coffee at the office be exactly what Jesus is talking about. As people see you and people know you and know who you are about, who you are about, and they see the generosity coming out of you, something about the generous God may well be commended in your picking up the coffee tab. Cash in your pocket, your home opened up for hospitality, your car loaned out. These things are, are easy for us to imagine, but then take it one step further. Because in some ways, that's all about the stuff that I already have, how I'm going to use it. But some of us are in a position where we might need to think about being generous before we actually acquire the things. And here's what I mean. Some of us are in positions where you make the decision about how much commission you receive, how much profit you take from your business. It might be that you should take the profit and give it to the church. Or it might be that you should just take less profit so that you can pay a higher wage than is going rate. Share it more. Last time we were in Seattle, we ate at a restaurant that in writing discouraged people from tipping. In writing, on the menu. 
So I asked the waitress, what's, what's the deal with this? And she said, long before Seattle passed its new living wage law that significantly increased minimum wage, before that, the restaurant owners had already decided to significantly raise the pay of their wait staff and eliminate this tipping subsidy idea. They thought, we need to, we want to pay our people a living wage. Never mind being forced to by law. We want to. So they'd already done that, and they wanted to be clear to people. That's reflected some in the prices, sure. But it's also, you know, it's coming out of their pocket in some way, too. Now, I'm not here, I don't want, I hope you don't get lost in the economic debates about living wage stuff. I just want to ask you, can you take a wild guess of what her opinion was of her employers? She's a waitress getting paid 15 bucks an hour. Not 250 an hour plus tips. And can you take a wild guess what she would have thought if she had also known that you know, and these people are Christians and that in some way informed why they thought that was justice to do to to pay our people something reasonable is justice. We want to do that. What would her opinion have been of their Christian faith? Because of what her paycheck looks like. That's another way that not all of us, but some of us are, are in a position where you can think like that and you can actually do that. Take less and give more in, in the paychecks, so to speak. And maybe it hurts your take-home pay if you treat employers like that. And maybe it hurts your monthly budget if you're, you're going to always buy the coffee at the office. Yeah. But of course, of course, the hurting the monthly budget, the hurting part, that's the whole point. It doesn't actually impress anybody if out of your massive overflowing abundance you give a little bit more. It does not commend. It does not, it does not say, this is something noteworthy. It's the sacrifice that commends. It's when you, when you begin to get the feeling, he doesn't make any more money than I do, but he's always buying the coffee. There's a bit of a sacrifice in that. It's because, I think it must be because he... He cares, or he loves, or something. It, it may hurt somewhere or another. It may, it may cause some contraction in your budget, but it is still prudent. Prudent to give away what will fail you, what will be gone, in the hopes of gaining someone who won't be gone, in the hopes of gaining some profit in the future. That's exactly what the manager did. He looked at what he had and realized, I can't hold on to this forever. What can I do with it now that may get me something later? And he was prudently generous. Use what you have, the wealth that you have, to win friends for yourself, kingdom friends. Thinking about kingdom and eternity, that's the horizon that we have to look towards. That's where you gain profit. And at the, the gaining of profit, we kind of are moving towards the second point here. 
So here's the second application. In, in my mind, just to kind of help you think about this, in my mind, this kind of gives us a little more of the, of the background, uh, the, the, I think, the theological perspective behind why we should do that. So here's the second point. Our wealth is loaned to us to help us gain kingdom reward found in total allegiance to God. Long sentence, I'll say it again. Our wealth is loaned to us to help us gain kingdom reward found in total allegiance to God. Let me try to work towards that. The first point focuses more on shrewd, prudent thinking and generosity, generosity that, that says something, that, that commends something to other people. But notice the whole thing is set up in the context of what it, what's in it for me, which might seem counterintuitive. Except that's how the whole thing is set up. It's not counterintuitive, it's explicit. The manager does that thinking about his future. Jesus says, gain for yourselves, friends that will welcome you. He doesn't say, spend your money so as to get more Christians. He doesn't say, spend your money, spend your wealth so as to build the kingdom. He says, to gain for yourselves, friends, who will welcome you. He's explicit that this, uh, this has personal motive, personal interest in it. Well, how is that? Why is that? Well, it's because what the, what the payoff actually is. Let me work towards this here a little bit. We've been given, or rather loaned, wealth for a reason. We are very much like stewards, entrusted with something that actually isn't ours, that we're supposed to manage to, to steward well. That's the assumption behind verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Jesus is just talking about general observation, character is consistent. This is how people work. We wonder, is so-and-so going to be good at this large, significant task, responsible with it? I don't know. Let's try her out on something smaller. That's how we work. And if she does well on the smaller, we can expect her to do well on the larger. If she doesn't do well on the smaller, we are not going to give her the larger. Right? That's what he says next. Notice very carefully. Verse 11 clarifies that a very little is not just a small amount of money, it's the money itself. Verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that's the very little, who will entrust to you the true riches? The greater. The very little is the wealth we have now loaned to us, given to us now, to see. How will you do with that? G entrusted to us by someone above us, God, entrusted to us, say, how will you do with that? And, 
and I'm, I'm kind of watching to see, to, to kind of weigh out in my mind, will I entrust you with the true riches, which is not more money. It's eternal. It's kingdom. Spiritual reward. I've got to see how, how you do with this. No one would think, well, she does poorly with that. Let's give her more. No one would think, verse 12, after all, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, if you were entrusted with something that you knew was not yours, you were going to have to give it back and give an account for it, and you didn't deal with it well, who's going to give you something that you don't have any more accountability over and assume you'll do well with that? Nobody. Follow the logic here. I'm going to give you something small to see how you do with something larger. I'm going to give you worldly wealth to see if you're, if you're ready for, if you should receive something greater. I'm going to give you something that you know you will have to give an account for. And until you do well with that, I will not give you something that you're not going to be held accountable for. 10, 11, 12. Which, if you, if you sit under that for a second and think like, hmm. I thought, didn't last week you preach that there's, there's no like performance-based worthiness? That sounds a lot like I'm checking your performance to see. Remember, he's talking to disciples. And there is such a thing as obedience. There is such a thing as consequence. Or to put it another way, to use a language we've, we've seen many times, there is such a thing as reward. You remember how often that's come up in Luke, perhaps even referencing back to the Sermon on the Mount. Several times it shows up there, but we could, we could look at uh, verse 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, Sermon on the Mount. What's the flip side of that? If you don't love your enemies don't do good, don't lend to them, or only lend expecting something in return, then your reward will not be great. That's the flip side of the Sermon on the Mount, which is what he's saying here. There's something on the line for us, which should be sobering. We have been entrusted. We've been loaned something. And like any manager, we are, we are accountable for it and being eventually watched. Now, there, you know, in, the, in the parable here, there was a time when he wasn't watched, but he did actually come back under accountability. We will come back under accountability for all the stuff that we have been entrusted with. This is true. This is true. You, you know, you remember Paul in, in Corinthians, context talking about ministers in the church, yes, different context, but the same principles there. One who builds with, with precious stones and precious metals or one who builds with wood, hay, and stubble, what happens? One of those things is burned up and that one gets into heaven but with nothing. Into heaven, experiencing singed loss. There is accountability here. We will all give account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good, and bad, good or bad. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians. There is accountability here. 
We have been entrusted with things. And we have been entrusted. We have been entrusted with much. I think I'm, I'm not wealthy. In a sense, maybe not. But in another sense, we are all wealthy. We all have goods. We all have resources. We all have assets. Generosity is, is defined across the spectrum, depending on how much you have. What sacrifice looks like for one is not sacrifice for another. Yes, 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 yes. But we all have wealth. We all have goods with which we have been entrusted. And what 10, 11, and 12 are saying is that God is, is watching that, and there is accountability. So that should make us pause and think. Okay. What is this really all about, though? Why does God care about what I do with my money? Because what's really all about is, is the last verse. As, as he's holding us accountable, as, he, as he's watching, what's he watching for? He's watching for what verse 13 gets at. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. And notice here, this is the language of absolute that we saw back in chapter 14. If you want to be a disciple, you must hate your relatives, even hate your own life. It's that either or absolute language. We talked about this a few weeks back. He does not mean in all contexts we should not love our wives, husbands, children, parents. He says that there are situations where it is an either or and our allegiance must be total towards Jesus, not divided between Jesus and our families. Same language right here. Wealth itself, wealth itself is just metal shaped in a, the shape of a car. It's just wood nailed up to look like a house, to be a house. It's, it's amoral itself. The, the possessions that we have, They're good gifts from God to be enjoyed, in fact. Just like a spouse, or just like family. But there is also another way that we have to think about it as an either or. And Jesus says, you cannot serve them both. You either love one and hate the other or flip it around, love and hate in reverse. You cannot serve both cannot serve God and money. What, so what God's watching for is he entrusts to us, as he loans to us this treasure, is not, is not just like, what do we do with the actual things entrusted to us, the, the money or the resources entrusted to us, but what he's watching is, is what, looking through the, what we're, we're performing, looking through the checks we write or the, the car keys that we loan out, looking through that, he's looking at the heart and saying, what's the allegiance going on there? And what he's calling all of us to is a total allegiance to him. 
That's, that's how it always is, right? He will not share. He, he's not for divided loyalties. Well, then why did he give us such a massive temptation like resources and wealth? He loaned it to us because it is so helpful. So helpful for us to gain the reward that comes to us from total allegiance to God. How he means for us to use wealth is he means for us to use wealth to worship God, not to use God to worship wealth. He means for us to, to have this wealth in hand and to be able to say both thank you for what you have given, thank you, my, my heart be turned to God in, in dependence on him, not a trusting in these things that he's given me. And to be able to take these things and say, in faith, in faith this way, I give this away. Trusting, I trust you and I give away what you give to me to bless other people. Why is faith the issue? Because this wealth is so good of a God, said with the Lord G. It is such a good God. All the wealth that we have, it promises to us, it offers to us, I will satisfy you, I will make you feel good, I will protect you, I will, I will delight you. I will give you some direction in life. All the, the resources that we have offer to us all the things that God would be to us. Or they become ways that we say, no, I will not trust you for my protection. I will not trust you for my security. I will not look to you for my pleasure and delight. I will look to him and I will use you to honor him. I will use the wealth that I've been given. I will use it generously. I will use it to meet actual needs in the world and not to become the God in which I trust and the thing to which I look for life. He's given to us this, the wealth that we have. He has loaned it to us because it is the way in which we, it is a way in which we actually can worship him and commend other people towards him by showing here, I care about you. I, I'm going to love you with these resources. And I'm going to show you as I pour them out of my hand that they are not my God. Giving them away. They don't hold me. They don't master me. They don't enslave me. I have another master. It's to him that I look for life. Here. You'll only be able to do that if you actually believe that he's got you. So when you find yourself like tight around money, realize the answer is not to run to the first point and say, be generous. The answer is to run to the second point and say, worship God. Trust God. Remember, oh, he has already shown himself to be for me. He's the one who became poor that I might be rich. He's the one who actually already took my sin, took my debt, satisfied it, raised me up, holds me. I can trust him. That's what you need to run to when you're in moments like I was this couple months back, I found myself caught by this as I contemplated loaning a dollar to a teenage girl. 
a single dollar. There's a teenage girl standing next to my teenage daughter, and I said to my daughter something about uh, some food options that were going to cost her some money, and the friend standing right next to her was quiet. And it ran through my head. I guess I, I could give her a dollar, and I thought, well, I'd be giving her a dollar. <laughs> and, and then I thought, a dollar. And I'm wrestling back and forth. First, I'm wrestling back and forth on the first point. Why aren't you more generous? You just give her the dollar. It's a buck. Give it to her, Steve. Well, but I'd be, I mean, it's a dollar. I'd, I'd, she's never going to pay me back. <laughs> you know, you know. Think, I'm thinking in the, be generous, be generous. And that's the wrong fight. The right fight is, what do you think you're going to lose when you lose the dollar? Because that's what's going on inside of me. I, I'm going to lose something. I will be short. I'll be minus one. And there isn't. Oh, yeah. What you believe is there isn't a plus one. You believe the ledger is actually going to be minus one. Because you think in God we trust or in dollar we trust. You think in dollar we trust. That's what's going on. That's why you're tight-fisted around that dollar is you don't actually believe he has you. And you're not actually thinking the joy that would be yours when you gave it away and were able to then see him provide. You don't, you're not actually thinking about, I want to commend this generous God to you. You're just thinking about minus one on the ledger. And that's where your life is found, in the dollar. verse 9 doesn't flow in your life, it's because verse 13. If the generosity isn't flowing, if, if the money's not, if the wealth isn't running through your fingers to other people, look at verse 13, not verse 9. Who do you serve? In other words, where do you think your life is found? What is securing you? What are you leaning on? And what are you depending on? May God do a work in your, in our lives that reminds us of that, that impresses much more deeply on you that, that when he sent his son to take your debt to the cross, he did not only remove the legal charge of of sin and condemnation against you, but he, he also brought you into the household, unworthy though you were, and promised to take care of you. So you're, you're secure in his hands. And then what he said is, here's some things Use them to chase after me. 
it will pay off for you in the future. There will be reward for you in the future. Trust me. It must be time to be done. It is time to be done, so let's be done. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> if the lights go out, that'd be my last clue. <laughs> uh, trust God and give away your money. Let's pray. Father, thanks for thanks for being a God who has us, has proven that to us by sending Jesus to save. As you remind us of accountability, Lord, will you, will you press into us that it's an accountability that's actually for our good? As you're calling us to total allegiance to you and to chase after great eternal reward. We are yours. We are your people. But here's the solution to the, the problem of greed in the world and the problem of greed in our hearts. The recognition that you are good, that you have us, that you are a great provider, that you're the real God. So help us to believe that, to see it, to trust it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.